What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for tuning back into the Car Tech Garage. Good morning, Max. Good morning. Another another week in history. I know we always sit here and say good morning because it's morning. It since is. We always yeah. record this before the radio show. So if you're not listening in the morning, good evening. Yeah. Or afternoon. Wherever whatever, you are. Whatever time. Whatever time. <laughs> All right. So we've got some weeks in automotive history. We're still playing a little bit of catch up. I appreciate everybody sticking with us. Um, uh, it looks like we've gained a few more listeners as well. So yeah. thank you for everybody that's new to the Car Tech Garage. And I hope you've had fun playing catch up on all the episodes we've released thus far this year. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, you know, pay a big ode of thanks to everyone. And that's, you know, why we did this. We're, we're two automotive professionals. We love cars. You know, I always make the joke. We do this five days a week, you know, working on cars in the service, you know, industry for, for automobiles. And then we come on a Saturday and sit yeah. here and talk about cars some more. So it's, it's kind of funny that we do that, but you know, we love the value that we can offer to people. And then on Sunday we watch all the races. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's a, a pro- it's a problem. It's, a good life. it's, it's slightly an addiction. So it definitely is. Well, let's go and kick it off here. Um, November 22nd, 1918, Enzo Ferrari made his original racing debut. A lot of people think it was actually the next year um, when he did a a hill climb in Parma, but it was actually in 1918 when he got third place at the very first Barma Berchetto race. Uh, It's a hill climb, and he was driving a CMN. Uh, He hadn't even started to construct his own Ferrari yet. He was just a, a young man, you know, not even strapped in on a leather straddle. It all starts somewhere. It does indeed. And of course, now he's built a uh, multi-billion dollar, um, you know, racing construction legend and, and, you know, somebody that's built some of the most beautiful road cars the world's ever seen. I can just hear the sound of a Ferrari. You know, that's just something you just, you can just recognize immediately. It's getting harder though now. I mean, with, you know, everybody switching to turbo sixes and all that stuff. Now, you know, back in the day, when they had the Countach or the Testarossa, or they had the, you know, they had the, the Diablo, or they had um, like the, the 312, you know, basically all of these different iterations of all these cars. The F40 came about, and that was a much different sounding car. You know, that was released uh, just before the Diablo was. But they were, they were so different in their manner of construction. Um, that you could always tell this apart and there were fewer supercars out there. Nowadays, I hear something loud going down the street. I looked around the other day and there was a fucking straight pipe Nissan Altima going down the road. It sounded like a GTR. It was terrible. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's getting ridiculous. Um, yeah, I, was, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know what anything is anymore. <laughs> There's three things about Ferrari that I, number one, see and hear the two of them. So number one is of course, red, you know, it's the first thing I think red or yellow. Yeah. When I think of a Ferrari, number two is the sound. And number three is a little, little thing that I learned not too long ago, watching a few videos and, and doing some research about them is the sound of a gated shifter and a Ferrari, just that click. As you're so shifting through gears. It click, is. Click. And I'm like, I just want a car that has a gated shifter. I don't care if it's a Nissan Sentra. <laughs> I just want a gated shifter in it. Gated shifter. <laughs> they do look so cool. I mean, they're they so do. aesthetically pleasing. They're you know? not easy to use, but. See, and, and they really deter you from eating in the car. I don't want to get anything caught down there in the yeah, little no. gated shifter. It's going straight into the transmission. It's going to fall out. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> 
right. Let's go and move ahead. November 23rd, 1897, taking it back to one of the births of the automobile. Um, Ransom Eli Olds, living in Lansing, Michigan, was issued his patent for his motor carriage. Um, and he had actually constructed it the year before. Um, and back when he was only 18 years old, um, I guess this would have been 10 years prior, he had built his very first automobile, which was a steam-powered three-wheeled vehicle. This one was gasoline-powered, but two months before receiving his patent, Olds f- formed formally the Olds Motor Company, and of course that grew in Olds Motor Works, um, and eventually he ended up coming up with the Oldsmobile Curved Dash. I always talk about that. It's pretty lame, but it looked pretty cool for the time. It was affordable. Um, He marketed it well, and it was really one of the premier early automobiles that you could buy in the United States, the Oldsmobile Curved Dash. Yeah, back when Oldsmobile was, you know, kind of a a fancy, you know, motor company. It's it's kind of funny because when you look at the Curved Dash, it it quite literally looks like just a carriage without a horse. That's why they called it the Curved Dash because it literally (laughs) curves up like Santa's sleigh in the front. It's kind of silly. That's kind of neat, though. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> November 25th. <laughs> We're going to talk about Moving V8s on. now. We're going to talk on. about V8s Something now. cooler. Not curved. So dash. November 25th, 1953, Ford Motor Company rolled out the very last flathead V8 engine. 21 years and 16,388,000 engines after Henry Ford's affordable design put eight-cylinder power within the reach of the common man. That's a, probably a sad day for a lot of people. Ah, they had better V8s out by then. Well, yeah, I know, but you still. You think this is 1953, buddy. You still have your hardcore guys, you know, just like you have them nowadays that are just, even if the engine's 10 years old, they're just that. Like yep. K-series Honda guys. I mean, they're all about K-series, everything. Like B-series Honda guys? Well, then you have B-series. Showing show my age here, and D-series Honda guys. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I could sit there and tell you all the engine codes, yeah. I was a <laughs> Honda guy at one point in time. That's all right. Honda's are really fun. I mean, I really, I don't have any hate towards Honda. I think they're some of the most fun cars I've ever driven. Like I think you hop in, in an Integra and it doesn't even have to be a type R. If you hop in an Integra GSR, they're just fun. Um, you know, hearing VTEC pop, having such a crisp shifter, a good steering rack, good balance. And you get all that for a reasonable price and you don't have to pay outrageous maintenance costs. Yes, yes. And yes. See, I think you, what do you always say? It's the three terms. You can have cheap, fat or cheap, fast and reliable. Yeah. You can pick two. And I think you can get them cheap and they're reliable and sometimes you can make them fast. Oh yeah. Now fast with quotations around it because it's all, you know, relative to, to what it is. So, I mean, you can make a pretty cheap Honda really fast and it won't be as reliable, but it'll be more reliable than like a Ferrari. I'm just saying it's it's one of the few cars that you can kind of hit all three of those and and have the best of both worlds. I would agree. I mean, you know, they you can be pretty quick, um, and it's, I, I guess it's all up to you know your. It's the relevance well, of, of exactly. Yeah, what it's speed. What is. are you in competition with? Like, what is your competitive group that you're in? Like, what what segment? You know. So I mean, obviously, if you're out drag racing against other V8 cars, and you know. They're going to need a bunch of money. nitrous and slicks. And yeah, the, the reliability on the four cylinder is going to go down because it just can't take that type of stress. But you know, there, there's a lot of things. But it's still reliable. You know, for for power output, I would consider it the, more the reliable. One, the one modification that's cheap, fast, and reliable is weight reduction. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll give it to you. I'll retract my statement on that one. Or maybe a gurney flap. That'll give you enough. That'll give you enough cheap to design. Big 
plywood front splitter, even though it's probably easier and cheaper just to make a carbon fiber one nowadays with the price of lumber. Yeah, I know. (laughs) All right. November 27th, 1956. Future NASCAR great Junior Johnson. You guys might remember who he is. I mean, very, very accomplished racer. He pleaded Mm. guilty to manufacturing and distributing moonshine whiskey. Now, the Johnson family was involved in the whiskey business long before Junior had even been born. In fact, his maternal great-grandmother served supposedly as the second highest-ranking Confederate general. Sorry, not grandmother, grandfather. (laughs) Um, Second highest-ranking Confederate general in North Carolina. Now, uh, his father, who's a lifelong bootlegger, spent nearly 20 of his 63 years alive in prison. Oh, wow. Yeah. that's For moonshine? Yep, for moonshine. And uh, so, I mean, their house was frequently raided by revenue agents and all sorts of stuff. Um, so his family actually experienced the lar- largest alcohol raid in United States history, 400 gallons of moonshine from their property. Jeez. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's crazy. So, so he, Junior, that is, he spent one year in prison in Ohio for having a legal still, although he was never caught in his many years of transporting bootleg liquor at high speed because he was one of the original guys, you know, that got stock car racing. Um, you know, he was one of the guys that was running moonshine around in a modified car outrunning the police. And once NASCAR became a thing, he decided to try his hand at it. And in his first full season, he won five races, uh, finished the six in the 19 or finished six in the, in the 1955 NASCAR grand national point standings. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. You know, I just thought about this and this is a little bit funny to me to and an entertaining thought, if you will, you know, we have a lot of prohibition for, for many things, mm-hmm. But in a current time, you know, a current topic that we have is, you know, legalization of marijuana. Just think of what kind of sport would have been developed if marijuana was the one backing NASCAR. Um, they would start <laughs> racing couches. Yeah, that's what I, mean. <laughs> I just was thinking about it. I'm like, okay, so moonshine, you know, NASCAR. All right, Junior's coming around the final turn. Oh, he's got a nice lazy boy with an upgraded hitch. Yep. He's pulling in for a quick nacho break. He stopped for a snack. Stop for a snack. <laughs> But so he ended up getting pardoned by President Ronald Reagan, of all people. Wow. Yeah. I did not. In 1986. And uh, Junior's pretty happy about that because it uh, reinstilled his right to vote. Instilled. Yep. I saw that. I I got that little little tidbit there. (laughs) But yeah. So that's pretty cool. That's a fun little story. All right. uh, November 28th, 1895, 126 years ago. That's a long time. Oh my God. It's a long time. America's first race featuring gasoline-powered automobiles was held in Chicago. So six vehicles competing, two electric cars, three German Benzes, and one single American-made Duria. Now, not many people have ever heard of a Duria, but it was pretty no. much the fastest thing out at the time in 1895. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's so an understatement. Basically, a bloated Clydesdale would still beat it in a race. <laughs> Bad. <but> no. <laughs> Um, so initially there were supposed to be 80 entrants and it was supposed to be held in summertime, but it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and it ended up being, you know, here in November, um, and it ended up snowing that day. So when the flag dropped, only those six cars were there. Um, and they all drove right into automotive history. 
you know, a few miles <laughs> into the race, both electric cars broke down. Um, of course. And then the German built Benz cars were just no match for the Duria. They were both single cylinders and the Duria was a twin cylinder. Um, they even took an accidental two mile detour. It was a, a 10 and a half hour race and they crossed the finish line. No other car in sight. I think the other cars, uh, the Benz cars took like an additional hour and some to, to even make it to the finish line. Jeez. So yeah. Uh, one of the very first races ever, um, went for the USA baby. Got to start somewhere, right? Well, we don't have any, you know, formula one champs except for Phil Hill. Yeah. Um, and we don't have any, you know, but anyway, um, we're just not one. good at racing <laughs> F1, I uh, guess. Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of other factors that play into that, you know, but, yeah. but still. <laughs> All right. November 29th, 1975, a solemn day in automotive history. Graham Hill, two-time Formula One world championship, was killed just 46 years old, along with five members of the Embassy Hill Grand Prix team. Um, so he flew his own plane and, and went from location to location, and they ended up... Um, flying into some very dense fog that was nearby at the airport. He was trying to land and they ended up crashing and all were killed. Um, really, really sad. You know, I mean, yeah. he, he won the driver's championship with BRM in 62 and Lotus in 68. Um, he was actually on his way back from testing a car in Southern France. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, he's, uh, he's actually the only driver to have claimed to what he dubbed and many other have dubbed as well, the triple crown of motorsport. You know what that is? I don't think so. I know you've talked about it before. So it's winning the Monaco Grand Prix. Okay. On his way to winning an F1 championship, by the way, the Indianapolis 500. Okay. And the 24 hours of Le Mans, the, the three most watched races in the world and, and, you know, most famous and some what most longest grueling, standing. Yeah. Most grueling. That races longest too. standing races. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, so so he's the only driver in history to have claimed to all three of those to have won. Yeah. And then his son, um, he won in 96, Damon Hill. He won the F1 championship in 96. He's only one of two sons to win world championships uh, like their father had. The other one's Nico Rosberg, obviously, his dad being Kiki. It's kind of neat. Yep. It's kind of neat. It is kind of neat, right? He was born to go fast. <laughs> no, that wasn't a Ricky Bobby reference. <laughs> oh, everything is. Everything is in my life. That, yeah, that's yeah. the most quotable um, movie of all time, in my opinion. I agree. If you're any somewhat of a, a fan of any motorsports, that's a movie that it is, is a must-watch. It's just the best there is. It is. <laughs> just the best there is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, November 30th, 1965. You guys can thank Mr. Ralph Nader for his book, Unsafe at Any Speed. Now, the book has been voted among the top 100 pieces of journalism in the 20th century when it was published. Um, and in the book, Ralph Nader accused car manufacturers of their resistance to the introduction of safety features like seatbelts, you know, airbags, everything else. Um, now, obviously, at this point, airbags hadn't been, I don't even know why I said airbags, airbags hadn't even been deployed in 1965. So anyway, most of it was about seatbelts and, you know, constructing cars that would actually hold up well um, in the event of an accident. Now, they had a general reluctance to spend money on improving safety, you know, just like race cars had in the past. Um, Now, less than a year after the book was published, Congress created the Federal Safety Agency that ended up becoming the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Um, and of course, you know, their mission is to save lives, pre- prevent injuries and reduce crashes. Um, but today, even some of the book's harshest critics acknowledge its impact because all said and done, 
It was a very important book in automotive history. Had this book not come out, who knows where automobiles would be today in terms of safety. I mean, think of how many people's lives have truly been saved in the event of an accident because of all the safety features that are mandated on these cars nowadays. I think it's frankly impressive, and I think it's one of the best things to come about on the car since its inception. I I mean, I'm all about speed, but unsafe at any speed really was needed at a time when auto manufacturers were just trying to sell, you know, all gas, no brakes. Yeah. And that's, you know, you have to look at the the limitations of something. And, you know, I can only imagine back in a time being a young kid, you know, getting in some of these cars when they started, you know, hot rodding and, and things were going faster and faster. And we all know if you've ever driven an older vehicle, they might've been fast, but there was no brakes. There was no suspension to back it up. Yeah. No, no good s- steering geometry. Like, I mean, it just terrifying. I mean, to, to really pilot fast, unless you were on the ball and you were ready to do that. Exactly. I will say it took a lot more bravery <laughs> to go fast in an older car than it does in these new ones. I mean, the new ones, you know, it just feels like a video game. That's what they always criticized the GTR about when it came out was, oh, you know, there's nothing analog about it anymore. It always seems like the car drives itself. You just point and shoot. And, you know, in a way that's a good thing. But at the same point in time, it really strokes everyone's ego when they hop in that car mm-hmm. when they may not actually have the, the ability. capability. Exactly. But even uh, Bob Lutz, who was a top executive at BMW, Ford, Chrysler, and GM, he even said that he didn't like Ralph Nader, and he didn't even like the book, but there was definitely a role for government in automotive safety. And you know, It's I mean, a pretty, I, pretty deep fact. That, you especially know, you know, now, now being a father and everything, I, I want every single safety feature imaginable in the car. <laughs> you know? exactly. I mean, when I was an 18-year-old kid, yeah, I, I drove well, around I a Supra that I literally ratchet-strapped the seat to the, to the bottom because it like the bolt holes had broken care. out. Yeah. Had a seat belt that didn't work in it. No air. I mean, you know, but I you wasn't worried wall, about that stuff. Wall, I was know? worried about getting sideways, man. <laughs> That's all I cared about. Swifty drifty. Swifty drifty. But you know, I mean nowadays things are a little bit different. Yeah, I'd rather have airbags. <laughs> <laughs> all right. December first, nineteen thirteen, hundred and eight years ago, the Ford Motor Company installed the continuous moving assembly line for the net mass production of an entire car. Um, of course, reducing the time it took to build a car from more than 12 hours to just over two. That's impressive. It is. Yeah. I mean, obviously the amount of money that he's able to make, um, he even hired a motion study expert to make jobs more efficient, which they now do in many avenues of business. Every single fast food restaurant, every single warehouse always has motion study experts to implement a plan for the production of something to save as much time and movement as possible. Um, and that was huge because Ford was able to produce more and more cars, accelerating the pace of production all the way up until June 4th, 1924, when the 10 millionth Model T rolled off the Highland Park assembly line. Um, obviously, that's a lot of cars. Yeah, it is. That's a ton of cars. All right. December 2nd, 1902. I know we're kind of moving through these, and a lot of these are from way back when, but this one's important because it is the patent for the first working V8 engine. Ooh. Now, it's not American. It's French. Um, the guy was named Leon-Marie-Joseph-Clement. Levavasor. That was I'm, actually his last name. I'm impressed that you guys had to practice it last night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the engine block was the first to arrange eight pistons in the V formation that allowed a crankshaft with only four throws to be turned by all eight pistons. Now he called it the Antoinette V8 because his financier's daughter was named Antoinette, much like Emil Jelinek with Mercedes. He called it based off the guy who was buying it. 
Um, now it only ever powered speedboats and a few airplanes, no actual production cars, but it was the start of something great because who knows how long it would have taken for someone else, some other brilliant mind to come up with a V8 engine. Maybe we wouldn't have had one at all. What a weird, terrible world it would be to live in. Yes, it would be. be just a bunch of four cylinders running around all the time. Who knows? Maybe we'd all be stuck with rotaries. <laughs> oh, no. Never even be able to see across the street because all the oil smoke in the Say air. Say goodbye to vacations because <laughs> it's going to blow up by the time you get an hour away. Uh, it'd be funny. We'd have gas and oil pumps right next to each other. <laughs> we'd be uh, just putting sorry, oil. I'm sorry, rotary guys. I'm sorry. I know they're actually really good engines they if are. you take care they're of them. Awesome. If you take care of them. If you neglect them, though, they will leave your ass. For the right application, of course, because they are rotary. They have problems. Absolutely. All right. December 3rd, 1990. Crazy things just uh, 30 years ago. Mr. Wendell Scott passed away at age 69. Now, if you guys don't know who Wendell Scott is, you should. He was the first African-American NASCAR racer and one hell of a guy. I mean, just out outright drive, determination, and care. You know, in the face of adversity, in the time that he was in and racing, I mean, he got everything, the whole book thrown at him time and time again, and he kept coming to those races every weekend. I I mean, frankly, it's amazing. You know, I mean, uh, he even, um, he did win a Grand National Series race, uh, 1963. He never had the best car, never had the best materials, you know, constantly being heckled by everybody. And he became the very first black driver to win a race at NASCAR's premier level. Um, It was obviously repeatedly affected by racial prejudice, problems with Mm. top-level NASCAR officials, and everything you would imagine at that point in time, um, you know, in the southern United States. Now, his determined struggle as an underdog won him thousands of fans and many friends among his fellow drivers as well. It wasn't until 2015 that he was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, though. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, one thing I've got to say, Bill France, Bill France is our dude, all right? Bill France was the guy that pretty much sanctioned and started NASCAR. There was this one race, I can't recall what race it was, but all of the race promoters were financing the driver's fuel money because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you had to fill up a tank of gas and you brought the car and, the, and the, the promoters would pay for your fuel to run the race. Now, Wendell Scott showed up in his car, broke and the promoters decided at the last minute not to give him any fuel money at all. They gave everybody else and decided, no, you don't get any, you can deal with it yourself. Now, Wendell being Wendell, you know, he wasn't going to stand up for that. He was like, well, this isn't right. I'm going to climb the ladder. And he kept, you know, trying to plead and plead to the NASCAR officials that were there at the race. And Bill France ended up overhearing it. He walked outside and asked Wendell what was going on. Wendell explained him the situation. Bill France reached into his own pocket and gave Wendell the gas money. That's awesome. And he even told everybody at NASCAR that racers are racers and we take care of one another. I can't remember the exact quote he said, but he stood up for the guy and he did the right thing. Well, you got to think, you know, I mean, with a racer like that, you know, facing adversity you're not just facing what's on the track you're not facing other drivers you are literally facing everything else outside of it that affects your driving ability and what you're doing on the track and for him to keep continuing to race and race and race and at the end of the day all that mattered was that racing mentality that he was a race car driver and he wanted to win and that was all anybody else should have looked at each other as, as you know people who wanted to race yeah just human beings we are all the same on the inside and you know, I, 
I will get along with anybody that likes cars. Exactly. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> That's what I mean. All right, everybody. Well, I think that about wraps up these weeks in automotive history. Thank you so much for listening to the Car Tech Garage. Uh, we love all of you. Yeah. Bye. Bye.